Our scripture lesson is taken from the Gospel of John, John chapter 12, reading, uh, that's uh, page 1,238 in the Pew Bible, 1,238. John 12, I'll read 11 verses with particular attention to the first eight verses. John chapter 12, verse one. Then, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There, they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. As far as the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John contains no great miracles of Jesus. We have been considering together for some time this uh, gospel and uh, saw recently the miracle of the healing of the man born blind and then the raising of Lazarus from the dead and then the determination of the scribes and the Pharisees, the ruling council or Sanhedrin to put Jesus to death. This chapter is uh, somewhat in contrast to what immediately precedes it in terms of the hatred of the Jews, for in this chapter, Jesus is honored. He's honored again and again and again. He's honored at uh, this dinner by uh, Mary who anoints him. He's honored in the a triumphal entry. He's uh, honored by Greeks seeking him out. He's honored by a voice, the voice of his Father speaking from heaven. Uh, Jesus receives much honor in the 12th chapter, and uh, today, uh, today we want to uh, uh, look at uh, this incident where Mary comes uh, at this dinner and anoints him with a uh, very expensive oil. Uh, a great uh, extravagant act of devotion. Now we have the account of it here in John's Gospel. We also have the account of the same event in Matthew 26 and in Mark 14. There are a few differences in the various Gospel accounts, no irreconcilable differences. Uh, for example, one, uh, Mark and Matthew say that uh, she anointed his head and John says uh, his feet. 
Calvin says that he means he was anointed from head to foot when you put all that together. Uh, we'll see in a minute uh, why John emphasizes the feet, but uh, uh, those kind of differences may uh, cause some people a little uh, a question mark in their head, are they really talking about the same event? Well, if you study it carefully, you see that uh, these differences can be reconciled. Well, uh, today we want to, uh, to look at this extravagant event, and the first thing we want to take notice of is the occasion on which it was performed. Uh, it was done at a community event that was convened in order to honor Jesus. The setting is a dinner at a home in Bethany. We're not told by the Gospel writer John whose home this is, but both Matthew and Mark do tell us whose house this is. It's the house of one Simon the leper. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible that we know of, and uh, we can presume that he's a leper no longer, otherwise no one would be allowed in his house. Uh, but uh, he must be one that Jesus has healed. So uh, Lazarus isn't the only one in Bethany who has benefited from the ministry of Jesus. This Simon the leper has done so also. But we also read that, that Martha, uh, Martha who's always busy in the kitchen, you know, and scolding Mary for not helping her or asking Jesus to rebuke her for not helping, uh, Martha is serving. And that's not unusual in uh, ancient times. It would often be the case that uh, people would get together at somebody's house. That still happens, you know, and it's a bit of a potluck maybe, and, and different people contribute and make contribution to the meal, and Martha's doing that as well. So uh, Simon's providing the, men, the venue, and uh, other people are providing things as well for the feast, and Martha is one who's helping with the serving. We also know from the other accounts that uh, the disciples are there, and that's evident here because Judas is uh, described as in John's gospel, but the other gospels tell us the other disciples are there, and, and there is a broader representation of the community. It's not just the 12. So you have a, a community event. In fact, if you look carefully at the grammar of uh, John 12, uh, it says uh, that they, verse 2, they made a uh, a supper for him. Uh, uh, they made him a supper. Who is the they? What is the, the antecedent? What does that word they refer back to? And grammatically, it refers back to Bethany. Uh, the, the town is the one that is making this supper for Jesus to honor him. Everybody's coming together. They're all glad uh, for him, for what he has done for them, and not just for Lazarus, but for Simon, and pr presumably for other members of the community as well. They're all coming together. Everybody's making a contribution to honor Jesus. Now, I can't help but think of the church when I read this. <laughs> uh, the church is a community, a community of people who gather together and everybody brings something to honor Jesus. Uh, even if it's just your presence, uh, you have brought yourself, and your, your presence is an encouragement to the other people who are present. We encourage one another by just coming together and smiling and, and greeting one another before and after the service. And, uh, but we also make a contribution in terms of our voices when we sing together and we make a contribution together when we bring our offering. 
You know, uh, uh, Simon uh, the leper, uh, he, he provided uh, the venue. Well, you have provided the venue. Even if you weren't here when this building was built and contributed at that time, uh, if you've been joined the church since then, you've been uh, contributing to its upkeep. So, uh, you know, you provide the venue, you provide your presence, you provide your voices, you provide uh, gifts for other things. Uh, we're all making a contribution together to honor Jesus. That's what the church is all about. If you merely come to church out of a sense of duty and obligation or to avoid being thought ill of, you haven't understood the, the beauty and the glory of worship. We come here because we love Jesus. And we come here because we, we love each other and we want to be together. We should look forward to getting together the way families look forward to getting together for Thanksgiving or Christmas or birthdays or, or anniversaries. Well, maybe some of you are thinking, I really don't look forward so much to uh, those family events because there's some of my uh, relation that I, I'd, I'd rather not be with. Well, that may be with regard to your earthly family, but that ought not to be the case with regard to the church. Because the bond that we have together as fellow believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is far stronger than the bond of blood or the, the bond of family lines uh, in, in your earthly families, which are temporary and really just given to you to, to give you an idea of what your eternal family is supposed to be like and the bond that we have together forever, the bond that we have in Christ. And not only is the church family different from our earthly families in that the bond is stronger, the bond in Christ, the bond of the Spirit that lives in me and lives in you that unites us to Christ and unites us to one another, but, but this family is also different in that this is the forgiven family and the forgiving family. We have been forgiven. You and I have each been forgiven. If we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been forgiven a huge amount of guilt and sin. And because you have been forgiven such a huge quantity of sin, it ought to be a little thing for you to forgive the offenses that we commit against one another. You know, if, if you're a member of the church and you hold a grudge against somebody for something that happened so years ago or a while back, again, you haven't discovered the joy and the glory of, of the family of God. We have been forgiven a huge sum, and, and he calls us now to forgive one another as well and, and to rejoice to become together. Well, this community had benefited from Jesus. Beth, Bethany had uh, benefited from Jesus, and they came together to honor Jesus. You and I have benefited from Jesus, and we come together to, to honor him and to serve him. That's the beauty and the glory of coming for corporate worship to honor Jesus. But now we want to look especially at this extravagant act of devotion. Now, how, how extravagant was it? Well, it uh, concerned some uh, spike nard. Some translations have nard. Uh, the nard plant has spikes on it, and from the spike uh, is uh, distilled an essential oil. Uh, 
It, uh, this plant grows in the Himalayan mountains. The Himalayan mountains span uh, Nepal and China and India. And uh, it has a long and ancient history, this uh, spike nard or nard oil. Uh, it's been used in history as a perfume, a, a medicine. It's been used for religious ceremonies. It's been used to uh, make spiced wine. And uh, there are some uh, ancient rabbinic writings that call it the lost scent of the Garden of Eden which is simply the rabbi's way of saying it's really nice smelling stuff, you know. If uh, you ever uh, get a chance to smell this, it is, uh, it is a delight and, uh, to, to, to smell. Now, uh, Mary's nard is described as pure, uh, not diluted or imitation, uh, but uh, the real thing. And if any of you have any experience with essential oils, you know that uh, just a little bit can be very expensive. In fact, this is said to be uh, 300 denarii. Judas says it could have been sold for 300 denari denarii. Uh, a denarii is plural, den uh, denarius is uh, the singular. Uh, one denarius uh, is equivalent to a day's wage. You may remember the parable that Jesus taught about uh, hiring workers in the morning and hiring them later in the day. In the parable, uh, the man who was doing the hiring paid each one one denarii, uh, one denarius. And uh, scholars say that the parable is true to the, the economics of the time. That was a uh, typical wage for one day's labor. Well, here you have 300 uh, denarii. 300 denarii, and uh, given the fact that they didn't work on uh, the Sabbath, uh, and there's uh, 50 some odd, uh, 52 Sabbaths in a year, uh, 300 is, means every working day for a year. This is, this is the equivalent of one year's salary. Now, I don't know what the average salary is in this congregation or in this area, but uh, I did look up the, the average salary for the United States, and it, I learned that it varies uh, uh, coastal areas. It's really high, and uh, Midwest, it's a bit lower and so forth. But if you average it all out, it's about $50,000. Now, I know that's going to make some of you think, oh, that's not enough, and it's going to make others of you covet and wish you had that much. But uh, uh, don't worry, if you're young and you're not earning that much yet, uh, that'll come in time. Uh, be patient, work hard and uh, so forth, and if you're earning a lot more than that, rec remember that there are a lot of people in this country that get by on a lot less than you do, but anyway, imagine a f something worth $50,000, $50,000, and she took it and brought it to Jesus. That was an extravagant gift. Note the quantity also, it's uh, a, called a pound of nard, and uh, a pound of uh, essential oil is about uh, 12 ounces, like a pop can, uh, that amount of uh, fluid or liquid, and, uh, which is a large amount of, uh, of oil. If you have, again, experience with uh, essential oils, you'll know uh, it uh, a little goes a long way. And uh, note also how she applies it. She 
We're told that uh, here that she applied it to his feet, uh, in other gospels to his hair. She probably uh, put it on a good part of his exposed skin and maybe even on his uh, clothing, we don't know. But uh, John emphasizes that uh, he put, she put it on his feet and wiped her feet with her hair. Now, why would John tell us that? Well, in the next chapter, John is going to tell us that Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And you remember how Peter reacted. Lord, you may not wash my feet. Well, uh, Peter knew his feet needed to be washed, but he, he didn't want Jesus to do it because that was too humiliating to Jesus. That, that, was, that would put Jesus in the form of a, a lowly slave. You know, if you had employees, uh, if you were a master of employees, you, it was against the law at this time to uh, force an employee to wash your feet or wash, uh, command them to wash somebody else's feet, a guest's feet or something. That's something that was uh, only the lowest slave would, could be made to do. And most people just would provide water and you wash your own feet because uh, they didn't, no one would want to abase themselves, uh, lower themselves, humiliate themselves by having to wash someone else's feet. Uh, well, that's what... Uh, John wants us to see she's doing. She's, she's not only giving this, this tremendously expensive gift, but she's also administering it in a very humble way. And, and she's wiping his feet with her hair. Now, at this time, people, the women wore their hair up, tied up on their head, and uh, ne would never appear in public with their hair loose because that was, again, shameful. Only loose women would uh, show their loose hair in, in public. So uh, Mary is coming and basically saying, I don't care what anybody thinks of me. I don't care if anybody is going to judge me or uh, think me uh, uh, wrong for doing this. Uh, I'm going to, I know who Jesus is. I know what, uh, what he, he means to me. And I'm going to honor him with everything that I have and everything that I am. Uh, when the others see this, they become indignant. It wasn't just Judas. Again, Matthew and Mark tell us that uh, the other disciples also became indignant. Uh, here Judas speaks up because uh, he is especially incensed by the fact that uh, this money is wasted. He is a thief, we're told, and uh, used to help himself to what was in the treasury. He was the treasurer of the, uh, of the group and, and helped himself to what was in the purse, and he sees this money uh, that could have been his uh, being so-called wasted. But the others are also uh, indignant. Uh, presumably their motives are better motives. They have a genuine heart for the needy. But uh, Jesus rebukes all of them. And uh, he says, uh, leave her alone. You know, don't trouble her. Uh, he, he approves of what she's doing. You know, if, if I didn't know the outcome of this story, uh, I, I would be wondering too, is this good stewardship? I, I have the same questions sometimes when I read in the book of Acts how the, the people would sell a piece of land or sell a house and bring the money and lay it at the disciples' feet. In Acts chapter 5, you read about that. And then, of course, Ananias and Sapphira, they, uh, they, they do that too, but they, they lie. They keep some of the money back. But 
The point is people were selling capital assets. They were selling income-producing property, denying themselves forever the future income or future use of that property, and giving it away. Is that good stewardship? Well, Jesus says, leave her alone. Don't trouble her. And in the other Gospels, he goes even further and says, and truly I say to you, wherever the Gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. That's quite a distinction, quite an honor, you know, to be commended so by Jesus. Although I hope that every one of you one day receives a similar commendation after Jesus has separated the sheep from the goats and says to those on his right, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And you'll be amazed, as uh, people were amazed in, uh, in Jesus' uh, speech in Matthew 25, uh, uh, when, uh, when did we uh, do anything good and worthy of this and so forth, but uh, nevertheless, uh, that is what we hope for, that uh, Christ will commend us as well. Regarding the poor, Jesus is not indifferent to them. When he says, the poor you have with you also, he is affirming that we have a perpetual obligation to help the poor, uh, one that will never go away, the one where you can never say, I've done enough for the poor. But he's also teaching us that our obligation to love him is above all else, and that without devotion to Christ, even our uh, helping of the poor can uh, be misdirected or a bad thing. Jesus recognizes that their concern for the poor is rather superficial. You know, there's a lot of social activism, even such that meets legitimate needs, that is unacceptable in God's sight because it's not done the right way. True for compassion for the needy should grow out of a gratitude for the fact that Christ has met our needs, that he has seen us in distress and come and helped us, and then we in gratitude turn around to help others in his name. Uh, remember the, the definition of good works as it's found in the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, the definition of good works is not only that it conforms to God's law, uh, but also that it arises from true faith, which means it arises from a sense of, of, of humble gratitude. Christ has, has blessed me, and now uh, I show my love for him by helping others in his name and it has to be done for the glory of God. Too much charity is merely self-righteous piety done for bragging rights. When Jesus said, the poor you have with you always, he was saying that this extravagant act of worship is not meant to be a lifestyle. <laughs> Taking care of the poor is a lifestyle, but this is not a lifestyle thing. Mary did it once. She did it out of love and devotion to her Savior. You know, in light of what Mary has done, we should ask ourselves if if we're willing to give up what we treasure most for him. That's, that's really what this is all about. It's showing us somebody who's willing to give her all to Jesus in gratitude for what he has done for her. Mary had a sense, uh, an intuition of what Jesus was about to give up for her, and she responds by offering to him that which was her most valuable possession. And that's really what 
what being a Christian is all about. You know, the Christian faith is, is, a, is a call to wholehearted commitment to Jesus. The call of the gospel is not to uh, uh, try it out for a 30-day free trial and see if it works out for you, see if it, it meets your needs. No, that's, that's not what it means to, to become a Christian. You don't become a Christian on a trial basis to see if it's going to work for you. It, it's commitment, commitment to Him. Because of what He gave for you, He has the right to ask you to give your all to Him. And if you're not willing to give to Him the most precious thing in your life, then don't come. Don't kid yourself. Don't pretend to be something you're not. And it's not just your things that He wants. He wants you. You know, Mary, if she knew the song, could very well have sung, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You've sung that. You've sung that many times. Think about that. That's love so amazing, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's what it means to become a Christian. Jesus told a couple of parables along the same line. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. You know, this nard was, was probably a family treasure. Maybe it was their, their insurance policy, you know, or so whatever. She gives it all. She's found the treasure in the field and she gives up everything for Jesus. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Have you bought your pearl yet? Have you bought your pearl? Have you seen the immeasurable value of Jesus? So valuable that you're willing to give up anything for him, do anything for him, thank him for anything that he sends into your life. Sadly, too many have the idea that God owes them a good life, and they come to church to fulfill some religious obligation and in order to collect on what God owes them. Is that why you're here today? To say, God, I'm doing my part now. After I leave and go home, you do your part and bless me. You owe me, God. Mary is showing us just the opposite. Because of who he is, because of who Jesus is and what he has done already, we owe him everything that we are and all that we have. If that seems too much, listen to what Jesus says next in defense of Mary. For he goes on to defend her. He goes on to defend her by saying she did it in preparation for his burial. She has saved it for the day of my burial, and by day he means the, the general time of my burial. You know, this, this is the day, this is the time, this is the period uh, where he's about to die and, and be buried, and, and so it is uh, the day. He's been looking forward to this uh, day. He's been saying, my day has not yet come, but now his day has come, and uh, she saved it for this day, for his burial. Now, some people read that and think that Jesus is imposing that on 
her action, but she never really intended that herself, kind of like the way Caiaphas made a prophecy concerning the death of Jesus, that he was going to die for the nation, uh, thinking that uh, the death of Jesus would save the political structure and the social structure uh, and prevent a rebellion that the Romans would then crush and they'd lose everything. And, but un, uh, unconsciously, he was really selling something much bigger than what he knew. Well, John tells us that Caiaphas didn't know what he was saying, that he was unconsciously making a prophecy that meant more than, than what he himself understood himself to be doing. John doesn't tell us that here, and so we shouldn't think that Mary is, is totally uh, clueless as to what's going on. She too understands. You know, the, the disciples, they, they didn't understand. The male disciples didn't understand because they knew Jesus to be the Messiah, the son of David who had come to restore the kingdom. And the idea of je death just did not compute with them. Jesus dying, not, that, how does that fit in? Jesus would tell them again and again, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And, and, and it just didn't compute because they kept on thinking, no, he's going to restore the kingdom. You know, he's the Messiah. My, messiahs don't die. They, they go on in victory. They couldn't understand that his death was his victory. But Mary... Mary's a woman. <laughs> Women have intuition. They, and, and she's been sitting at his feet. She's been sitting at his feet listening. She's heard what he said, and she understands he's going to die. He's going to die. And, and everybody knew that the scribes and the Pharisees just a week earlier had sentenced Jesus to death without a trial, without evidence. They determined he has to die. That's why Jesus left the area. He, he went away uh, out to the Jordan River, out by the wilderness. But now he's come back. He's in Bethany, which is only 1.7 miles from Jerusalem, well within the reach of the Sanhedrin that wanted to kill Jesus, you know. And she's thinking, I don't know when it's going to happen. It could happen any minute. It could happen any time now. And, and I don't know wh whether his body's going to be available to me afterward. And so... I'm going to do it right now. And that's what she's doing. That's Jesus tells us. That's what she's doing. She's saved this for the time of my, of my burial, and that, that day has come, and that's what she's doing. Uh, she, she maybe didn't understand all that why Jesus had to die, but she was convinced that he would and that he might be very soon and that afterwards she wouldn't have the opportunity to care for his body. This is a one-time act of devotion. You know, John, too, wants us to be thinking about the death of Jesus, although he does it in a more subtle way. Uh, he opens the passage by saying, six days before Passover. Now, he's writing, of course, uh, some time, maybe a year, couple years, I don't know how many years after the death of Jesus. So he could have just said six days before Jesus was crucified. That, that would have been the logical way to introduce this. Everybody knows about the crucifixion of Jesus by the time John writes his gospel, and he should have said six days before the crucifixion, but he didn't. He said six days before Passover. Did he not want us to think about the crucifixion? Yes, he does want us to think about the crucifixion. But he wants us to think about the crucifixion as a fulfillment of the Passover. That Jesus is our Passover lamb. That his blood is like the blood of the Passover lamb. And when the blood of the Passover lamb was put on the house, 
Those who were in the house were protected from the angel of death, and death didn't touch them. And we also, when the blood of Jesus covers us, are protected from the death that our sins deserve. Oh, our bodies die, but our spirits remain alive and our bodies will be resurrected. And even though we die, yet shall we live. And whoever lives and believes in Jesus will never die because Jesus is our Passover lamb, came to take away the sin of the world. Where do you get the strength to offer your life to Christ? Where do you get the strength to give yourself to Him, to give your most valuable things to Him? To, where, where do you get the strength to do that? You get the strength by recognizing that that's what He has already done for you. He gave His life for you. And because He gave His life for you, you now can offer your life to Him. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. In view of his mercy, in view of Jesus dying to pay for your sins, offer your life to him, which is reasonable. It makes sense. He gave all his all for you. You now give for him. And not only that, but now his spirit, the spirit that that brought him to the cross and gave him also new life after the cross. That spirit lives in you. So Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because Christ lives in you, because Christ gave himself and because the Christ who gave himself lives in you, you now can begin to give your all to him. To whom are you devoted? For whom are you living? Mary gave her all by giving this costly gift. There was a widow who gave all she had when she gave two pennies. The disciples would later give their very lives in martyrdom in service to their king. You and I are called to follow in their footsteps and to offer our lives as a living sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. May God give us grace to follow. Amen. Let us pray.